You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to another History of the Second World War interview. One of the goals of the podcast is to push beyond the typical stories that you hear about the war and to discuss lesser known events. When I saw the book that I will be discussing with its authors during the interview today, I knew it was a perfect fit. As an American who was born in 1988, the treatment and benefits provided to military veterans has been just a fact of American society for my entire life. You know, there's a very specific definition of what we give to people who choose military service. However, the treatment of military veterans is something that has seen a tremendous amount of change in many nations over the last century. That change has been driven by a whole host of societal factors and is in no small part driven by the veterans themselves. This brings us to the interview today with Dr. Martin Crotty, Dr. Neil Diamant, and Dr. Mark Adele, the co-authors of The Politics of Veterans' Benefits in the 20th Century, A Comparative History. One of the major reasons that this book caught my eye was that it did not just cover the experiences of veterans in one nation during one small period of time, but instead is a comparative study that looks at events from around the world after both world wars. The nations covered are China, Russia, Japan, Germany, Canada, Australia, and the United States, which is, you know, quite a list. And all of these nations had experienced the wars differently. Some had lost, some had won. Others had experienced relative political stability, while others had experienced political chaos and revolution. The one similarity is that they all had veterans who had fought in the war, and their treatment of those veterans is, I think, a very interesting topic to discuss. I think it is made more important due to how the treatment of veterans in many nations changed between the wars, and then has then changed in the decades that followed. To use the American example, Veterans' benefits were completely changed by the GI Bill that was introduced after the Second World War. It would provide a host of economic benefits to returning veterans, giving them access to low-interest home loans, business loans, and tuition money. All of these benefits were paid out immediately after they started arriving back home. This was very different than what was experienced by American veterans after they returned home after the First World War. The treatment of American veterans after that war would result in the Bonus Army marching on Washington in July 1932, protesting to gain access to pensions that had been promised to them, but not until 1945, which was seen as far too late given the economic hardships of the Great Depression. This example, an American one, is just one specific thing that is discussed in the book. And the reason I like the book is that it has so many different examples from so many different nations, something that that we talk about quite a bit in the interview. If you wish to learn more about the topics discussed in the interview, check out The Politics of Veterans' Benefits in the 20th Century, A Comparative History, published by Cornell University Press. You can find a link to this book in the episode description. Well, maybe I should start. by just giving you a brief in- introduction um, to uh, fr- the, the hypothesis and the framework uh, that we try to establish uh, for this book. Um, by the way, my name is Neil Diamant. Um, I teach political science and Asian studies at Dickinson College uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, not far from 
Gettysburg, probably a topic of uh, quite some interest to your listeners. Um, so, so you mentioned that we looked at several different cases, um, and I think that was you know one of the more innovative elements uh, in our book uh, in reviewing the large literature uh, on veterans. We found that uh, there weren't many studies that focused on sort of uh, many countries, particularly countries like China, Taiwan, Japan, the USSR, Australia. Um, the tendency in the literature was to look at veterans in one country, one country only, uh, or uh, looking at one country in relation to uh, another country, so two-country comparison. So the first goal um, of our book was to broaden the scope of veteran studies uh, by including these other cases. Um, and this, this was not easy, and it's why there are three of us uh, on this talk. Um, it, you know, it really took a team, team effort to get this done. Uh, my colleague Mark, uh, Mark Adile uh, from University of Melbourne um, reads Russian and German uh, along with some other languages. Um, um, Martin Carty, University of Queensland, um, is an expert on Australia and quickly became an expert on uh, the United States and England. Uh, and between the three of us, we were able to cover a lot more ground than each of us were writing separately. Um, and so this collaboration allowed us to look at comparisons both within countries, say World War I, World War II in the United States, uh, but also comparisons between Leninist regimes, like comparing the USSR uh, in China, um, comparing World War I and World War II in the UK, uh, looking at countries that were uh, influenced by Confucianism in relation to one another, uh, like Taiwan, Japan, uh, and China. Um, and so, so this was only possible because we worked as a team looking at these broad cases. Um, and it was only through this comparison that we were able to arrive at our core argument, um, which was basically that it's really politics that drives the differences uh, between these countries, um, between benefits given to veterans in one case to another case, even within the same country. Um, so, um, for example, you find big differences between veterans given to World War I veterans in the United States and World War II veterans in the United States, um, largely as a function of different uh, political organizations, uh, veterans organizations that were, that were uh, established between World War I uh, and World War II. Um, so, so politics in a broad sense drives the argument, but how politics works in every country is quite different. Uh, and that's why we you know, we did, need, really needed to establish a broader comparative perspective. So the, the first uh, you know, the hypothesis that we had setting out um, was winning should matter. And it turns out that uh, sometimes it does, but oftentimes it doesn't. And then, of course, we had to figure out, well, why is that the case? What is sort of the common explanatory factor behind cases of success and cases uh, of, of, of failure? So maybe, maybe I can jump in here. I'm, I'm Mark Edel, University of Melbourne. Um, so my, my uh, area of expertise is Soviet history in the first instance, but also uh, a little bit of German history now. Um, and I mean, the, the, in the winning losing one right the the soviet and the german case are particularly stark um the soviets if if winning would be leading to really good benefit systems somehow automatically the soviets should have gotten in incredibly good benefit systems after world war 2 uh, but they didn't um they got some immediate benefits during uh demobilization um but then once the mobilization was over by 48, basically there was very little left. What was left for war for uh, war disabled uh, was geared extremely towards getting them back to work. So it was um, very strongly uh, used as a mobilizational tool um, for the Soviet case. That much of that changes in the 70s. Uh, and early 80s because of political changes in the in the regime uh, and
and sometimes unplanned uh, political changes. Um, but in the uh, between the, the late forties and uh, the late seventies, uh, there's they're they're not very well treated in many ways. Um, on the other hand, the Germans, right? They they lose World War One and they get one of the best benefit systems in Europe. Um, very bureaucratized. Um, uh, leads to a lot of frustrations because you, of course, always have to interact with bureaucracies um, in order to get your benefits. And, you know, bureaucrats tend to try to make sure that um, you don't get uh, benefits if you don't uh, exactly, you know, fall into the categories and so on. That leads to great frustrations. But in real terms, it's a very good uh, benefit system. And even after World War II, when uh, you know they've they've lost the genocidal war. Uh, the victor nations basically try to uh, destroy the German veterans benefit system and the veterans movement because they see it as part of you know the kind of what they saw as a Prussian militarism. Uh, once German politicians were back in charge, immediately they they get an incredibly good benefit system. So uh, they are quite good examples for just falsifying that. Sort of intuitive notion that victory should should matter. Um, Martin, uh, one. Yeah, I'm uh, Social Professor Martin Crotty from uh, the University of Queensland. I should say that this um, project, from from my point of view anyway, started out as uh, one of the two country comparisons that uh, Neil mentioned. Um, Mark and I met at a symposium in about 2011 and did a comparison uh, between. Uh, uh, the USSR and its benefits regimes, and Australia. Um, and although, obviously, um, uh, victory and defeat didn't prove uh, determinative in those cases because Australian veterans did much, much better than the Soviets, we thought there were a whole lot of other things that might also have been at play. One of the obvious things is that Australia is a democracy, um, whereas the USSR... Um, there was no capacity to influence the government at the ballot box, and we thought that was probably a very important one. We also thought it would be very important um, that Soviet citizens, that Russian citizens, had suffered extremely heavily, particularly in World War II, whereas the Australian home front was largely untouched in either of the wars. So it wasn't just this victory and defeat thing that we were initially working with. We had about seven or eight variables that we were playing around with. Um, the existence of a good veterans organisation, for example, was another one. Um, but one of the interesting things was that once we met Neil and once we started to bring in all of these other cases, none of those really held. Um, so we were in an interesting kind of situation where our whole uh, we, we ended up shooting down our own hypotheses about uh, our own theories about why it was that Australian veterans had done quite well. Um, whereas Soviet veterans hadn't. Um, so bringing in all of these other case studies, um, uh, the USA, uh, United Kingdom, China, Taiwan, Germany uh, and Japan allowed us to test these hypotheses across a much greater range of case studies. But also really importantly, because we were collaborating across disciplines, um, we were able to get insights uh, across our, our disciplines. So um, it all did come down to politics in the end, and we were able to explore that by collaborating with a political scientist uh, who introduced us to ideas such as the political opportunity structure and that kind of thing. So um, the collaborative element was, was extremely important to this project. I guess what I guess what did survive in the end into the book is the notion that veterans' organizations are important. Right? Yeah, yeah, we're, we're saying yeah. that. They become critical, but they even then they weren't necessarily determinative, were they? It had to be a, a, a good um, structure that they operate, or a favourable structure yeah. that they operated in. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you mentioned veterans groups and, and their sort of importance, and throughout your book they pop up in most of, of the of the cases, um, I, th I think. Uh, so why were veterans groups so influential? Was it mostly, you know, uh, you know, their ability to organize veterans? Was it maybe 
were there some negative cases where the fear of veterans groups, like I think you mentioned about about Germany, uh, what, what were some other sort of uh, impacts that veterans groups had? I, I think that the more dogmatic the veterans groups were uh, was one of the key key elements in this. Um, so obviously Weimar, which Mark can talk about more, had a great fear of the um, uh, German veterans of World War One. But even in Australia, the veterans organisation was extremely militant. It was set up in the middle of, middle of 1916, which is pretty impressive, really, given that um, Australian troops hadn't gone into action until April uh, 1915 in any numbers and hadn't turned home in any numbers until very late that year. Um, so it was set up early, it was well organised, it was well led, and it was uh, very militant. So it lobbied hard and effectively. And when it didn't get what it wanted, it uh, carried out press campaigns. Um, it uh, threatened violence. It occasionally employed violence, not on dramatic scales, but it was able to intimidate the government. And in other situations where the veterans organisations were not able to do that, the veterans or, or chose not to do that, veterans tended not to get much in the way of benefits. But I think uh, this is probably where Mark needs to talk a little bit about Weimar. And um, uh, I think also the prohibition of veterans groups in some contexts, such as in China and USSR, becomes very important, very influential in shaping the poor outcomes that Chinese and Soviet veterans got. Right. So, so, so a key, so a key, a key difference, as Mark was saying, is uh, we're, we're tactics. It's not the existence of a veteran organization per se, or necessarily its size. But it's the willingness of the leadership of veterans' organizations to really go to the map with politicians uh, and fight really hard and very uh, sometimes very long to get their members benefits. Uh, and I think in the book uh, we have um, a, a very extensive discussion of UK veterans uh, after World War One and World War Two, uh, and there you see that veterans' organizations. Existed, uh, but did not really deploy uh, aggressive tactics uh, dealing with politicians, and uh, their their benefit system uh, uh, was 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 not quite uh, what it could have been um, had the veterans' leadership made different choices about how to engage the political structure at that time. It was partly the nature of the leadership of that organisation. It was very much. The British Legion was very much an organisation of the establishment. So its first president was um, uh, Douglas Hay, um, and then it, he was succeeded by Jellicoe. So it was very much uh, of the establishment rather than anti-establishment. And I think the same could be said for the American Legion after uh, World War One as well. Um, so. yeah, I mean, Weimar, Weimar is also a, a very strange case because in a in a way, uh, veterans win a very good benefit system very early. It's sort of there, and that's one of the one of the um, you know, arguments in in some of the studies of the Weimar veterans movement is that that actually frees up um, the particular the right wing veterans organizations to become much more political in a in a broader sense rather than. You know, a, a pressure group for their constituency. The constituency kind of got what they wanted, uh, so that leaves the the sort of more right wing because there were left wing uh, veterans organizations as well. Um, but particularly the right wing veterans organizations, they they are sort of free to to engage in 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 politics in in a, in a broader sense, not veterans politics, but you know. Uh, politics of pushing the, the the national discourse to the right. Um, so it's in in a way, you know, the very success of of that early on uh, led to a quite different outcome. So Weimar is a quite an interesting case. And I, I mean, the the, the Weimar um, Great Britain uh, or UK comparison is also quite interesting because basically you get fairly um loyal a fairly loyal veterans movement in uh, the UK despite the you know the relatively neglectful treatment 
uh, while you get an extremely anti uh, anti republican um, uh, right wing veterans movement in Germany, uh, despite you know very good benefit system. So it's it's not even that you know you would sort of ensure that veterans are are loyal to the whatever the regime is by by giving them benefits. Um, so that the I mean it all in in the end we we came back very often to very specific political situations, very specific political struggles, very specific and very often national, um, which is maybe another thing we need to talk about is the national, transnational dimension uh, of, of veterans politics and nationalism. Yeah, as you as you were saying that, Mark, I was, you know, it occurred to me, you know, in the January 6th, you know, insurrection, you know, against mm. the, you know, the government. Uh, there were many veterans, and at the time, I was thinking, you know, this is very strange. You know, they have such great benefits here. American veterans do very well. Why, why are they so angry? Um, and you see, you know, a very similar parallel to to Weimar. It's because they're taken care of, because they get benefits that they're sort of freer to engage, uh, you know, in broader sort of right wing, right wing. Politics. That's a bit of a depressing conclusion, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. But you can never appease these people. You can never give them enough. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and I mean, Australian veterans were, you know, they were remained militantly, even though they were the founders of the nation and were on it through Anzac Day, and so they got all of the ritual recognition and the material reward. Um, uh, but remained fairly militant about, well, pretty much anything, uh, although never. Uh, in that sort of anti-establishment or anti-regime nature that um, the German veterans had. So it's one of the paradoxes, isn't it, Mark? I mean, when you, when we look at German veterans and British veterans after World War One, I, I think that's a, an incredibly stark contrast. Um, and the Germans lost, get great benefits. Uh, the British won, get poor benefits. The Germans are, are um, very anti their government. Uh, or anti anti Weimar, whereas the British veterans tend to be very contained and very sort of loyal to the establishment. There is an argument that um, uh, I, I can't remember the it was Deborah Cohen, I think, who put it forward, who said that because the British had to rely on charity from uh, charitable organisations, uh, that they remained very embedded and grateful to their whole social system. As, as opposed to the Germans, who might have been grateful for the benefits they got from the government, but regard, still regarded themselves as outsiders, partly because they didn't get much from uh, civil society in, in terms of charity and so. Yeah, and there's there, there's that, that's also where the whole bureaucratic argument comes in that that uh, mm. in, a, in a weird way benefit systems are quite alienating because they force you to interact with. Bureaucracies, right? Um, yeah. While in a way, charity is maybe less alienating. Um, mm. Produces gratitude. Yeah. So, yeah. Again, sort of uh, 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 maybe a slightly depressing. <laughs> <laughs> Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. 
You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So another theme that is sort of uh, around the book, you've mentioned lots of, of politics happening, a lot of politics. And, and you also mentioned earlier in the interview how you were kind of surprised as you were going through this, you were kind of testing hypotheses and having some of them proved to be incorrect. One of the things I found really interesting that you mentioned in the book is sometimes when you look at veterans benefits in too much of a vacuum, you end up maybe missing something from the wider story. I think the example that, that was used was the British veterans after World War II, where if you just look at what the British veterans were given, maybe the, the benefits were not great, but there were events and, and trends within the wider nation, you know, a push for better treatment for everyone, you know, the National Health Service and things like that. Were there any other sort of non-veteran targeted events that, that sort of surprised you in, in how they affected veterans benefits or in a positive or negative way? Well, one thing I could talk about that I think Mark uh, is also very aware of, because he works on the former Soviet Union, is the role of ideology. You know, in, in Marxism, veterans are not a class that the government is able to interact with. Uh, they interact with workers, you know, proletariat. Uh, they interact with so-called capitalists, with landlords, and so forth. Uh, so veterans do not fit any of the traditional Marxist categories. So setting up a distinctive system for veterans as a kind of a separate identity uh, was extremely challenging. It really did not take. Uh, so, you know, if someone who participated in World War II goes back to a, a factory, that person is now a worker before he is a veteran. Um, and this is simply a result of, of the ideology. Uh, that both of these countries had, um, which you don't see in the other you know, non-Marxist countries. So an American veteran comes back to a factory. He can be a veteran for a lot longer. He may not want to be, but he can be uh, by way of asserting his identity. His identity as a veteran is in law, uh, claims benefits uh, on basis uh, of that identity. Uh, but in a country like China, veterans would return uh, to factories, uh, to villages, and there they would be workers and peasants. Uh, and as much as they may have wanted to assert a distinctive identity on the basis of their participation in a war, the political system wasn't really set up to do that. Uh, and so until this day uh, in China, there is no veterans law. Um, even though there are many veterans and the veterans complain about this all the time, uh, only recently has the government given them their own bureaucracy. So right now, there is a veterans bureaucracy uh, in China uh, just in the last couple of years, but there's still no veterans law. Uh, but there is labor legislation, and there has been labor legislation for quite some time. Uh, and so, you know, for Chinese veterans and Soviet veterans, this was a very big obstacle uh, that you don't see in some of the other cases. Uh, so again, it really speaks to the importance of looking at political factors related to, say, interest groups related to ideology, related to who's in power, right? Is the, is, the, is the top leader sympathetic to veterans or not sympathetic to veterans? Right? These are very important variables that we were sort of forced to look at uh, over the course of this, of this study. On the, on, the, on the ideological front, I mean, the, the Soviets uh, say that quite explicitly. There's again and again, there are approaches after the war that people say, oh, we should have a veterans organization. And uh, the central committee apparatus responds, you know, this is basically, this is, this is political illiteracy. Uh, you, you don't understand that you don't have a shared interest. You're not, you know, you're just people who were in the army. Um, and now you're, you know, whatever your social class is. Um, and the recognized social classes at that point, uh, since the 30s, are there's two classes, the peasantry uh, and the proletariat. 
they're non-antagonistic officially um, because there's no longer capitalism. Uh, and then there's a, a stratum, which is the intelligentsia, which is everybody else, white, all kind of white color people. Um, by the, and so therefore, you know, no organization is allowed. Um, there is in the, in, then in the, in the uh, mid fifties, they, they organize a veterans organization, but that's meant to be a front organization to join the international veterans uh, organization. Uh, so it's meant to be a, a front organization in the in the in the Cold War, so they can you know uh, um, counter the American Legion um, in the International Veterans Organization. Um, but that organization then gets taken over by veterans, and they constantly misunderstand what they're supposed to do, and they start to use it as a lobbying organization in the sort of more in 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 the more liberal atmosphere of the of of, of post-Stalin Soviet Union. Um, this creates constant problems. They get reorganized a few times because they keep organizing local chapters, which are not meant to do, and so on and so on. Um, but then there is a, a campaign about a new constitution in the 70s, and veterans write in massively saying, we need a special status. Uh, and Brezhnev, who's then uh, uh, general secretary, basically, it seems more or less off the cuff, says, Oh yeah, we should find some more benefits, and that then leads after some back and forth to the first veterans uh, law in the uh, late seventies. Um, so then they they de facto have created a status group with specific rights, but they still can't explain it ideologically because they shouldn't exist. And the the man who who solves that problem for them is is Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, who is a great ideologist uh, and. He basically makes them into a generation. He says veterans are basically the older generation who fought in the war, right? Which makes sense by the by the 1970s and 80s. Um, it didn't make sense after the war because you know all pretty much men of all ages fought in the war. Um, it didn't make sense to th see them as a generation, but generation was a recognized kind of category. So veterans then become a generation. And then logically, that means that the people who didn't fight at the front line should also be veterans. And yes, they then become veterans as well, veterans of the home front, and they also get specific benefits. So there's there's all sorts of you know permutations uh, which are, but which are very strongly ideological um, as well as practically political. I think the one that connects the Soviets, uh, Soviet, Chinese, and British cases after World War Two is the idea that uh, if everyone is provided for in a workers' paradise or in a welfare state, then you don't need to make special provision for veterans because everyone's going to have good health care and everyone's going to have good housing and everyone's going to be adequate, adequately clothed and fed, um, however much for lie that is. Um, it does uh, bring us back to um, a couple of interesting points. One is the idea of privilege. Um, it's Notable that in the two cases where we think that the veterans did best, uh, that is America after World War II and Australia after World War I, um, they got uh, fairly extensive benefits in countries that didn't really have developed welfare systems. So this idea of privilege, it's not just what you get, it's how much more you get than anyone else gets. Um, that's what gives you a particular status, a particular level of privilege. And one of the interesting things I found in my research in Australia was that veterans after World War II were considerably more discontented, even though they were getting better benefits than they were after World War I. The reason they were more discontented after World War II was that an Australian Labor government had brought in a whole lot of welfare measures and had started to set up a bit of a welfare state. Um, so their degree of privilege had actually narrowed over what other citizens were getting. They weren't treated as being such of a special case. So there is a distinction there that I think needs to be borne in mind between privilege and entitlement. Um, to come back to, circle back to a point that um, Mark and Neil were both talking about in terms of uh, veterans not being a recognised um, sort of group or class. 
<coughs> I think our research gives light of that. And it's one of the premises, actually, that we start the book with. And that is that all veterans, um, regardless of their war experiences, regardless of the types of society that they come from, they all do essentially the same thing. And that is they remove themselves or are removed from the normal life course. In their 20s, they would normally be building their careers, establishing families and all the rest of it. They're taken out of that for a period of time. So they put their lives on hold and they put their lives on the line too because they're often in great danger. And they all face the same challenges when they come back to civil society. So it doesn't really matter if you're a Japanese submariner or a British fighter pilot or a Russian infantryman, you've got the same kinds of challenges. What am I going to do for a job? Where am I going to live? Who's going to look after me if I'm injured? So the commonality of that challenge is what I think gives rise to the commonality of uh, the demands upon the state. That much they all have in common. It's how the state responds to those where the variation comes in. So, so if you look at, at, at China, uh, you know, Chinese veterans demanded pretty much the same things as Soviet veterans and American veterans. Higher status, better benefits. Uh, they made similar arguments. You know, we saved the country from the Japanese. You know, uh, very similar sorts of arguments. But unlike the Soviet case, and this really demonstrates the importance of comparisons within categories, right? Because both are Leninist countries, right? both believe in Marxism, but the Chinese veterans were not allowed to separate to, allow, to establish a veterans organization. It did, they were not allowed to lobby uh, the central government in the same way that Soviet veterans were allowed to. They still don't have uh, a veterans law. And so even looking at the Leninist countries, which did not, for the most part, uh, enjoy uh, great benefits, the Soviets uh, did better than the Chinese uh, in terms of exerting a claim to privilege uh, and getting and getting more benefits. In fact, we are unaware of any situation where veterans did well without a powerful veterans organisation. Yeah, it's, it's it's a key. It's a it's a, a must have. I guess it's it's difficult to to get those good benefits if you don't have a a group or uh, advocating for you on a national yeah. level. or if you're not committed to yeah yeah um, <laughs> and you know I mean the, the British and American uh, organisations well sorry the American organisation after World War One was pretty supine so too was the British Legion uh, and the Chinese Veterans Organisation didn't exist so and, and those are the cases uh, where veterans do most poorly. Uh, during our conversations here, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about domestic political causes um, within these nations. Were there any examples that you found of external sort of pressures uh, altering how veterans were maybe treated? I, anytime I'm thinking about post-World War I or post-World War II in some of these countries like the United States or, or, or the UK or, or other places, I think of anti-communism, the fear of communism. Like, did those kind of international events affect how veterans were treated uh, domestically? Well, Mark and I can just go and have a cup of coffee while Neil talks about Taiwan. <laughs> but the, I mean, uh, the, the, so the, that's definitely important, right? The, the the international situation and the pressures those create uh, domestically. But there's also another international situation we haven't talked about. Which is transnational uh, situation that is either governments learning from each other or veterans organizations learning from each other. Um, and because transnational history is kind of a, a, a hot thing in, in, in current uh, history writing, we were quite uh, strongly looking for those processes. And very often we didn't find them, right? Um, uh, so, so very often you get actually quite self-contained uh, histories where, which we then expressed in the kind of slightly technical language of path dependency, which basically just means that you know that the history of that particular nation matters for what what happens later on. Um, 
there are exceptions to that, right? There are, because there are international veterans organizations, information uh, circulates. And there are even a few very strange uh, situations, such as the Soviets, once they have the veterans organization from 56 onwards, uh, some of these veterans activists say, you know, I was in Germany. Every In every village in Germany, there's a war memorial. We should do something like the Germans. Uh, and, and so part of the kind of um, growing uh, cult of World War II uh, is in a, in a very kind of paradoxical way uh, fueled from, you know, looking at, at you know, German militarism, basically. Um, for uh, inspiration, so so there are, and and a very strong case is Poland, where it's really the connection to international veterans organizations which allow them to uh, to fight for fairly uh, a fairly good situation in the interwar years. Um, but it's kind of the exception, I think, those transnational things. Um, the international situation, yes, I mean both, you know, both in Germany and in in Taiwan, certainly, uh, uh, that was very important. Um, also, the United States, the, the GI Bill um, was partially a reaction to the memory of um, of militancy uh, after World War One, and a kind of a, a worry that that veterans go sort of left. Right? Um, but that seems more important in many of our cases than actual trans transfer of ideas and 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 uh practices between nations although there are some but they're much less yeah, they're not particularly obvious are they i mean australia and britain were both in the british empire mm. called um british or whatever the british empire veterans organization was called british empire service league I think it was. um and yet they end up with radically different uh, uh radically different um uh veterans' benefit system. And the only real exchange that I could find was the Australian RSL lobbying the Australian government uh, with exa- international examples of, well, the Canadians are providing this, New Zealanders are providing this, and so they would use this as part of their lobbying. But essentially the lobbying is done by national veterans' organisations and they are lobbying, lobbying national governments which are paying the benefits out of the National Treasury. So uh, to some extent, um, the scope for transnationalism is limited. Um, But uh, the the Cold War provides a really interesting situation and a a really interesting story, um, which Neil can tell us about how it is that Taiwanese veterans, who uh, um, are not in their homeland, uh, have lost. you know, how, how is it that they end up? Yeah. Right. See, I mean, generally speaking, in, in Asia, um, the, the strong presence of the United States um, after World War II uh, strengthened politically conservative forces uh, in Taiwan and Japan. Um, and uh, it's hard to generalize this, but veterans' issues tends to be a sort of a more conservative right issue than a left-wing issue. And so when you have more conservative governments in Taiwan and in Japan as a sort of bulwark against communism, uh, veterans benefited from this because they were considered a natural constituency of more conservative parties. So the United States, uh, for example, helps fund the Liberal Democratic Party in Japan which uh, is created in the mid-1950s, um, and it has very strong roots to rural Japan, where most veterans happen to live. Uh, and so they're very in favor of creating all sorts of public work projects, expanding veterans' benefits, making sure that their cost of living uh, increases uh, takes place. Um, you don't have socialist governments for very long in Japan or Taiwan um, or uh, South Korea for that matter also, right? And so the anti-communism uh, that you see in the 1950s and 1960s and 70s even uh, filters down 
to the way veterans were treated. Um, I think, and, and of those cases, Taiwan is surely the strongest because the United States sent in uh, officials, they sent in advisory teams to try to build a veteran system modeled on the American one uh, in Taiwan. Uh, and so uh, in 1950, the uh, United States was willing to uh, write off Taiwan, uh, the nationalist government, and consequently its veterans. Uh, but thanks to the Korean War and the fear of communism in South Korea and elsewhere spreading, uh, the United States steps in uh, with massive funding uh, to Japan, massive funding to Taiwan, uh, and they direct officials to set up an American-style benefit uh, benefit system. And so you don't see uh, a lot of interaction between Taiwanese veterans and American veterans. That's the transnational part. But you definitely see uh, a relationship between the American government and uh, the nationalist government in Taiwan and the Liberal Democratic Party in Japan. Um, which in the end, directly or indirectly, uh, benefits veterans in those countries. On the other hand, you don't see much interaction between Chinese veterans uh, and their Soviet counterparts. Uh, you don't see Chinese veterans you know, going to the Soviet Union and trying to learn from their example about how to set up a veteran organization. So you don't see delegations back and forth between those two countries. Uh, but where the Americans have established a very strong presence, um, there you see veterans benefiting, uh, much like veterans benefited in the United States uh, with the establishment of uh, the GI Bill and the strengthening of American veterans organizations uh, after the war. Um, and I think, you know, thinking back to, again to, you know, to, to, uh, to January 6th, and, you know, one of the big differences between post-World War II veterans and veterans now uh, is that in the 50s, many veterans participated in veterans organizations, the American Legions, the VFW, um, and both those organizations are not as strong as they used to be. They don't have very strong membership, declining membership. Um, and so you don't have the sort of community solidarity um, that you had in the 1950s, certainly some of which could have mediated uh, between, you know, radical politicians uh, and veterans. Uh, uh, just an hypothesis, uh, but I think there are big differences uh, between the 50s and now and how veterans interact with veterans organizations. And I think that has not been uh, overall good for the politics of, 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 of the United States. Okay, so that was the last kind of planned question I had. Um, were there any other specific things that, that you found surprising or, or interesting during the research? Um, what I'll probably do is I'll probably cut out this part of me asking if there was interesting things and, and insert something else. But like, for example, you know, the, the Taiwan example and how kind of special that was. Uh, were there other interesting sort of special things that you found that were maybe surprising during your research? Um, well, you know, I had been studying Chinese veterans since the early 2000s. Um, and so most of the empirical information that found uh, its way into the book came from previous research that I had done and published uh, already. Uh, but I have to say, you know, I had believed, along with the Chinese government uh, at the beginning, that veterans were treated quite well. Uh, and so when I was handed files, um, from Chinese archives uh, with multiple cases of suicides uh, among veterans uh, for various causes, poverty, family problems, divorce, uh, mistreatment by their own government. Uh, I was quite surprised. Um, and I wrote this book uh, called Embattled Glory, which tried to figure out why. Why were Chinese veterans treated so poorly? Um, and like Mark and Martin did with their article, I tried to figure out the causes, and I had a whole list of them, uh, trying to generalize beyond the Chinese case. And like them, many of the, the, the answers that I had were proven incorrect when expanding the universe of cases 
beyond uh, beyond China. Um, so in my book, I thought that winning winning wars is important, <laughs> and as we know now, winning uh, is not that. Um, but uh, the Japanese case surprised me also, uh, as did the German veteran case. I mean, uh, the fact that uh, SS officers, you know, accused of crimes against humanity, could end up with generous pensions, um, that was surprising and, of course, you know, offensive <laughs> to me as well. Uh, but you find this case in Japan also, uh, same story. Uh, uh, and I think if you look at the United States, you'd probably find similar situations of American soldiers who commuted, you know, war crimes, uh, you know, in Korea or wherever. Uh, when they get back home, they enjoy similar benefits, unless they were prosecuted. You know, uh, so lots of things were surprising. I mean, I I, I remember actually um, Neil sitting in your office uh, on your campus on a on a visit and pouring with you over a book on the Germans' veterans movement after after war, and I was just was going, what? <laughs> what? What? What do the SS guys demand? And they get it really. Right. Uh, it's, it's, that, yeah, I remember a, that. Um, I mean, a, the other what chutzpah? What chutzpah? Made it into the book too. Um, the, the the German the German veterans had most chutzpah. Out of, of all of them. Um, right. I I mean the the other thing I think which needs to be mentioned about uh, Neil's work on China is that that would no longer be possible today, right? I mean, you wouldn't get access to these no. archives. Nope, and they impossible. wouldn't hand you. They might have, you know, you might have taught them a lesson or something. <laughs> yeah, all those all those fires are now, files are now off limits. Hmm. Wow. One thing that um, I think is maybe worth a little mention um, is that we've just had a the announcement of a royal commission into veteran suicide in Australia, um, and. The number of suicides in Australia amongst the veterans community since the outbreak of the war in Afghanistan considerably exceeds the number of casualties, uh, battlefield casualties that Australians have suffered um, in Afghanistan. And that's despite having what is still a very, very generous pension. So, um, Neil, I'm, I think one of the things that, you know, if we were to continue to work in the space, which we're not, um, but if we were, then, you know, what is it that drives people uh, to kill themselves? I don't think it is actually the quality of the benefit system that they um, that they are given. You, you can't buy people out of being suicidal. It, it, it's other things. It's trauma or it's difficulty in uh, uh, settling back into civil life, uh, transitioning out of the military. You know, so it's not as simple as saying, well, you've got to have good benefit system because otherwise people are going to pop themselves. Um, uh, veteran suicide seems to be a problem regardless of the quality of the benefit system. Right. There's a, a, a very good book by Jonathan Shea, uh, an American, I think I believe he's a psychiatrist, uh, called Odysseus in America. Uh, he worked extensively with Vietnam veterans, many of whom suffered uh, trauma. Uh, upon returning to the United States. And one of the important things he says is that it's very important for veterans to be with other veterans um, when they come back. Um, they need to find a community of people who experience similar things, because only veterans can experience, who know, know what the experience is, is like. And what happened after Vietnam and what's happening now, I imagine in many other countries, is that veterans are demobilized, they're sent back to their hometowns, and it's harder for them to connect physically. Maybe they can connect on the internet, uh, but it's not quite the same, not quite the same thing. And I think you see uh, not a small amount of alienation uh, of uh, among veterans who may enjoy good material benefits, but from a social perspective, from a community perspective, uh, don't feel that, you know, they get the respect or status or Community feeling that they think they they deserve, and I do think they they deserve. Yes, I, I think that that point about status is a very interesting one too, because the Australians who came home from World War One were seen as having given birth to the nation. 
And the British veterans after the two world wars was seen as having saved Britain from German domination, from Nazism and all the rest. And they were very thanked by their, um, by their home societies, not just in terms of benefits in the Australian case, but in terms of commemorations such as Anzac Day in Australia or Armistice Day in the UK. Um, and I think that probably does a great deal to uh, give them a sense of self-worth and all the rest of it too. Um, I think that's probably quite influential. What, one of the things we discuss in our book is the difference between uh, vertical status of veterans and their horizontal status. So the vertical status is mainly about what they get from the government. Uh, and these, this could you know, vary from very generous to very meager. Uh, horizontal status refers to how veterans interact with society, with their fellow citizens. And so in many cases, you can have countries where you have veterans who have high vertical status, but they're not treated particularly well by, by other citizens. And you could make the argument that horizontal status is, is more important, that you can get extremely good benefits, that you know, the government can give you the right to go to college free, you know, free tuition, uh, they'll pay for your room and board. But you know, if you don't get the slap on the back, you don't get the thanks. If you don't feel appreciated, um, those benefits really don't count for all that for all that much. Um, so, and, and that and, makes and that and that's a, and that's a hard thing to study. You know, how are veterans treated in everyday life? Their sense of respect, their self esteem. That's that's trickier to do. But this this makes these kind of wars also particularly problematic for returning uh, soldiers. The, the the wars like uh, uh, Vietnam. Or Afghanistan, which are kind of in faraway places, it's not totally clear, you know, to what extent that really defends the nation. Uh, it's relatively, you know, I mean, particularly in the case of Afghanistan, it's it's small elite kind of groups going there, um, and so they come back into, you know, basically people not caring very much, and the and the only time. Uh, this hits the Australian media is either if there's um, a report into veteran suicide or if there's uh, allegations of war crimes, right? And so, so um, that that must be quite a, a, a difficult a difficult situation. I, th I think it's um, uh, very much too also the way in which these wars are fought, as you were saying, Mark, fairly small and elite forces. But it's also the way that they fight. They're often fighting uh, fairly remotely. Their chances of actually being killed are, are relatively low. And Neil has a very nice example, or came up with a very nice example, which we included in the conclusion. Uh, the social status of someone who lost a leg in World War II being shot down uh, over Germany, uh, you know, they have a visible wound. It, it, it's going to confer a degree of status. That's very different to a drone operator who has carpal tunnel syndrome or PTSD from what they've seen on a screen in front of them when they've never left the States. I think um, one other thing that surprised me too, Wesley, uh, is just how messy some of these situations can be um, uh, and how confused. Um, there were some cases uh, that we looked at where the veterans who went to war were trying to claim benefits after the war from a state or a government which didn't even exist, which, which was different to the one that sent them. And this is particularly the case in Germany and in the USSR uh, in, in World War I. Um, but another interesting example is... Um, those countries which had very fractured or very divided veteran communities. And we finished the book with the example of France, for example. And very little research has been done on this, and it would be a great topic for someone to work on in the future, is how on earth did France manage its veteran politics and its veteran benefits after World War II? Because you had French who had surrendered to the Germans in 1940. You had free French who had fought... Um, uh, against Vichy France and against the Germans. You had French resistance. You had um, uh, the French who'd fought in the German SS. Um, 
and, and so on. So you get an incredibly divided kind of community there where uh, even in that veteran community, some of them have, have uh, been fighting each other as part of that, 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 that conflict. And I'd imagine that, uh, you know, I don't think it's quite as interesting in the Chinese example where you had the Chinese civil war because uh, no veterans get anything um, in terms of benefits, but there's, there's some really messy veteran situations out there. I think Yugoslavia would be another one. How did they sort that out after World War One? Czechoslovakia, those new nations that came in. Uh, Poland, a little bit of work has been done on Poland, but not much. So there's some really interesting... Uh, uh, and messy situations for historians other than us to look at in the future.